Our gospel lesson is found in Matthew chapter 9. We are reading verses 9 down through verse 17 today. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And Father, as we come this morning, we ask that you would teach us your truth that you would unite our hearts in the fear of your name, for you are good and you are forgiving. Gladden the souls of your servants today with all that you have revealed to us through your son, Jesus. And so we ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. As Jesus' ministry matures through the gospel of Matthew, we see two realities, two ever-increasingly strong realities. And the first is that we see the healing power of the kingdom of God breaking into the world. The tired and weary world that Jesus was born into is shattered as the lame begin to walk, as the dead are revived, as sinners are reconciled to God through forgiveness. Everything was being turned upside down by Jesus as he walked onto the scene. But second, there's also an increasing level of conflict. As the miraculous signs and teachings of Jesus grow and the crowds swell around him, there is also a corresponding level of controversy and conflict that emerges. This dynamic can be somewhat confusing Because Jesus was doing so much good, and how can the inbreaking of the kingdom be met by such hostility? Why do these two things come together? Last week, we saw the first episode of conflict. Actually, in chapter 8, Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee, and he heads into Gentile territory where he encounters two men who were demon-possessed. They lived there amongst the tomb. They actually blocked the roadway where no one could pass. Jesus cast out the demons, and then the people from the town come out. And rather than applauding Jesus, they asked asked him to leave. 
that he wanted nothing to do with him. He had just healed these men, and then they somehow perceived that this is a threat, that something tremendous had gone on, something outside of their normal experience, and so they asked him to depart, to exit. It's the first episode of conflict that we find in Matthew's gospel. Then Jesus returns to Nazareth, to his own hometown. And there, what we find is not conflict coming from the outside, that is, from the Gentiles, but rather what we find is conflict emerging from the inside, from inside of Israel, from inside the church. The Israelites, the heirs of Abraham, who were looking for the coming kingdom, that they too opposed Jesus. First, it was the scribes in Nazareth, as we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 9, and they were accusing Jesus of blasphemy because he said that he had the power to forgive sins. Then in our passage today, we see it was the Pharisees, another religious community in authority, and they were questioning Jesus about the company that he was keeping at mealtime. He was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And then if that wasn't enough, the disciples of John the Baptist, a friend of Jesus, took issue with the fact that Jesus' disciples were not fasting. And so on the one hand, Jesus was being criticized because of who he was eating with, and then he was being criticized about when he was eating. It sounds like a church. Opposition is on every side. Opposition is on every front. It's all around. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, noted this dynamic of conflict. And then he writes this. None was more quarreled with by men than the one who came to take up the great quarrel between God and men. And friends, this captures the why of the conflict. That Jesus was in so much conflict and he was engaged with so much quarrel because he had come to address the great quarrel between heaven and earth, between God and men. And this is what we have to investigate today as we look in verses 9 through 17, is what is really happening inside of that conflict and quarrel. And we'll see four things about why this conflict ensues. And the first is that Jesus threatens our autonomy. The second is that he confounds every one of our expectations. The third is that he challenges our priorities. And finally, we'll see that he establishes a new ethos. And so we'll briefly, ahead of coming to the Lord's table, look at each of these. First, he threatens our autonomy. In verse 9, we see that Jesus meets Matthew, the tax collector. He's in his office simply going about his duties, and Jesus intersects him. And he comes to him saying two words, follow me. It's a summons, and it's an effectual word. Matthew is captured. His life will never be the same. And then it's recorded for us very simply, the response of the kingdom is that he got up and he followed He had been summoned by God, and he leaves his life of moral and political corruption, and then he begins to go after Jesus. And we saw last week that these words, follow me, 
that they are not an invitation that is moralistic, that is to simply come and to get your act together and to make yourself good enough for God. That this is not what is happening in the summons to follow me, but rather what we have is this uncompromising, unswerving, and unconditional call in which we are to assemble ourselves behind Jesus because he doesn't invite us to the head of the line. You are not asked to be the line leader. You are asked to join the line, to submit yourself to Jesus, to renounce yourself. And as we renounce ourselves, we see that there are two main implications. And the first is that this following Jesus is an act of faith that's entrusting ourselves to him, that we accept who he claims to be, and we accept how he is going to go about accomplishing his work. And this is what many could not accept about Jesus, because his work will be accomplished not with a sword, but it'll be accomplished with the submission of a cross. This is Jesus' way of winning the world. And so we entrust ourselves, body and soul, to him. We recognize that he reveals God to us, that he is the living God, and that we must forsake deciding who God is and how God is to work that we don't have permission or the prerogative to do that. And so we follow him by following him in faith. But we also follow Jesus in the act of repentance. That is that we turn and we allow him to teach us, defining for us what is right and wrong, what is good and bad, that he is the judge and arbiter of those things. And so we let go of that determination for ourselves. And friends, this is what is so inconvenient about Christianity. And perhaps it's why those Gentiles on the other side of the sea, perhaps they saw more about what was going on than we even often give them credit for. That they understood the threat. That this one who could calm disease and demons, this one who could conquer death, that he's also the one who can bring us into line and that we must submit to. And are we willing, are we willing to follow? Not to be the head of the line, but to get in line, seeing that it is this Jesus who gives us everything. But will our pride allow ourselves to be subjugated and to be servants? And so this is the first quarrel that we have with Jesus. The second is that he also confounds our expectations. In verses 10 through 13, Jesus shows up at a meal after calling Matthew, most likely sharing company with Matthew and his friends. And he's there with tax collectors and sinners. The tax collectors, of course, were those company of people who had morally and politically compromised themselves in first century Israel. And they had joined side with the Romans to collect money for them in order to get ahead. They were not liked by anyone, but they were wealthy. Sinners were simply those who had been judged by the religious authorities to be on the outside. That they had compromised their covenant with God and had no interest in him. And so Jesus is sharing a meal with them and they couldn't believe it. And so they asked him about it. 
His answer in verse 13 is very blunt. Consider what he says again. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's interesting here because Jesus isn't saying that this pharisaical community was righteous. Rather, he knows that they perceive themselves to be righteous. And so he's explaining that he's come for those who understand themselves to be sinners and to be on the outside. But what Jesus knows is that those who perceive themselves to be righteous will never be in the position of need. That they'll never be desperate enough to want him or to need him. That they will always stand in the superior position of only critiquing him. They have no need of a physician because they don't see themselves as sick. They will never see themselves in need of something from Jesus. Now, friends, we know that this contradicts all that the Bible says about who we are as human beings, that none of us are outside the need of, ha- of, of, of a physician, that we all are desperately sick, diseased, that sin has corrupted us in all of our parts, that it runs through all of who we are, and that the physician is necessary. But yet in religious communities, it is so easy. In the church today, just like it was in the first century, it is so tempting for us to develop a sense of superiority to other people. And we do this, and we maintain that superiority by measuring righteousness according to our own measures. And what we do is we ignore God's measure. That is, we tend to think horizontally, comparing ourselves with others, and we tend not to think vertically, allowing God to scrutinize us. And it's under that system of measuring that we can then maintain some sense of superiority to other people. And we can think to ourselves, what well, I'm not that bad, and I didn't do that. But this is not how God would have us conceive of ourselves. Rather, he would have us conceive of ourselves as sharing in a common weakness. Sinners, ostracized from him, cut off, diseased, and in need of a physician. But yet, the religious community so often wants to feel superior and better than. And so the Pharisees were confounded in all of their expectations that this couldn't be the Messiah because he eats with sinners and he wants to help them and he seems to have something against us. And so friends, we have to be ready to be bruised, to accept the healing of the gospel, to know the physician is to hear the diagnosis that you are sick that you are diseased, that you need help. And then it's to lower our pride and be willing to ask. And it's there that you will find Jesus, that he runs to the broken, he runs to the sinner, he runs to the one who is on the outside who needs the help. And so confess your, your need for the physician. And we don't want to be that superior community. It is always a bad look Several years ago when we lived in Washington, D.C., we lived in a small neighborhood 
Arlington Heights. And there was some road work being done in our area, and it was leading to our neighborhood streets becoming a cut through. And so cars and trucks were speeding up and down neighborhood streets where children played. It was extraordinarily unsafe. And then the neighborhood association president, um, she was a fierce type, you could say, loud and willing to express her opinion, was very upset by the speeding in the neighborhood, rightfully so, but called a meeting with the local sheriff. The sheriff came to the meeting where he was berated and you could say dressed down. And at the meeting, the sheriff was informed that the real problem was those people from Maryland. There is no sinner like someone from Maryland if you live in Virginia. And it was all the people from Maryland driving to the Pentagon. Now, the geography of that comment makes no sense, okay? But it was the people from Maryland driving to the Pentagon, cutting through our neighborhood who were the sinners who were speeding. So the sheriff agreed to set up a speed trap and to then report back to the neighborhood at the end. Two months later, they received the report in which the sheriff, with a very sly grin, gladly informed the neighborhood that 80% of the tickets handed out were residents of the neighborhood, including the neighborhood president. And friends, this is what it is for us, that so often we start understanding our need. We know that we need a physician. We know that we're in need of healing. But then we move into that superior place, and we become like the Pharisees, and we become hypocrites. And we become angry, and we lose sight of ourselves. And this is what the church cannot become. Jesus confounds all of these expectations. He turns them upside down, and he wants us to see ourselves in that constant need of dependence, of mercy, and grace. The third thing that feeds this quarrel, though, is that Jesus also challenges our priorities. In verse 13, Jesus has quoted from Hosea chapter 6, an Old Testament prophet, and he says these words, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's answering the Pharisees at this point as to why he is sharing the table with sinners and tax collectors. And he needs to address that specific issue, so he quotes this Old Testament verse. And in these words, what Jesus is doing is he's critiquing them for observing their religious duties honoring God with their Old Testament sacrifices. However, he recognized that that their hearts are far from God. And so he's speaking to something that requires nuance and a spiritual assessment. And having little concern for others, Jesus is saying that they demonstrated that they actually had little concern for God. This type of argument was common in Jesus' day, where you would say, not this, but that. And so when Jesus says, not sacrifice, but mercy, he's not saying that the Old Testament sacrificial system 
was completely worthless. He's not wholesale dismissing it. He's not dismissing worship and formal institutions. But rather, these arguments were a way of pointing out emphasis that certain things have a more basic importance than others. And Jesus is saying, yes, mercy. Mercy for sinners. Mercy for those on the outside. Mercy for those who see themselves in need. And so he reverses the priorities of so much of what can happen in religion where we can focus upon ceremony and ritual, and we can do so in an empty way. And Jesus is saying no to all of that. No to empty ritual. And he's saying yes to an alive faith that both engages God in sacrificial, joyous thanksgiving. And also yes to God in showing mercy and love to sinners and to those on the outside that this is what he's commending, but what he knows is so desperately wrong with his audience and what can go so desperately wrong with us. And he challenges us at our core as to what we can slide into. The final piece that builds into this quarrel, this argument, why there is so much conflict, is that Jesus also establishes a new ethos. In verses 14 through 17, Jesus is now questioned by a community that's closer to home, John the Baptist and his disciples. They were part of the community that was seeking the restoration of Israel. And they noted Jesus' feasting, but they noticed also that he was not fasting. Now, it was typical for the Pharisees and also for those who were rigorous in the first century to fast twice a week, typically on Mondays and Thursdays. Fasting was a regimen that set you apart from others, demonstrated your seriousness and your engagement. But Jesus has an answer to why he doesn't fast twice a week. And he defends it around one note, and that note is celebration. And so he uses three illustrations. He speaks of a wedding, he speaks of a patched garment, and he speaks of a wineskin. And the point of those three illustrations is to point out that it's inappropriate at that particular time in history for his disciples to be fasting. And everyone would have understood the import of what he was saying, that a Jewish wedding was normally a week long, and there was dancing, and there was festivity, and there was feasting, and there was deep Joy in the fact of what God was doing in creation, redeeming all things and celebrating with family and friends, enjoying all of God's good gifts. And so it was deeply inappropriate at a wedding to go and not to eat. In fact, the person who would be offended the most would be the host because you were not participating in the good things of life with him. And so this is what Jesus is saying. Is not to feast at the present moment. As the kingdom was inbreaking, as the kingdom was coming, as the lame were rising to walk, as the blind were seeing, as the dead were being raised, as demons were being cast out, as Jesus was teaching about all the realities of heaven and earth meeting in him, it was inappropriate to fast. 
because God was doing something stupendous and momentous to grab their attention. And he says, the days will come. And he was speaking of our own time. But he's establishing the ethos of joy that also hasn't gone away and is never to abate. The bridegroom has arrived and he has established a new ethos. And it can be the habit of religious communities to fall into traditions. It can be the habit of religious communities to lose why they do what they do. And Jesus here is undermining all of it. And he's reminding us that behind it all is the joy of the kingdom of God. What God is doing to enter into history and to change the course of things. That our tired and weary world has been busted up. And that Jesus has brought the kingdom of heaven to the earth to renew all things. And so behind all of our prayers and our tears. Behind all of the sadness and the fasting. That Jesus says is even appropriate for today. There is the ethos of joy and thanksgiving. Because friends, the king has won. The king has come. He's undone all the sadness. And that's the ethos that Jesus plants. And this is what feeds the quarrel. Because Jesus undoes all the expectations. He establishes the ethos of joy. He is challenging our independence and our autonomy. And he calls us to follow him. And that he's bringing all of this as a gift and a gift that comes at the cost of himself. And that undoes all of our man-made traditions and approaches to religion and all the ways that we want to control it. And he calls us to come in line after him. And in submitting ourselves, he says, you will find life. And friends, this is why we can lay down the quarrel with God. Because God has given us everything in his Son. And so let's ask for his help. Almighty God, we give thanks for you have revealed yourself in your Son. You are our gracious Father who reigns in heaven. And you've brought us into your family, into your fold, in and through your Son who came for us. And you grant us the privilege today to come as sons and daughters to make our request known to you. You are good and gracious to us. And we confess today that we are sinners. And though so often we perceive ourselves as righteous and as better than others, we come today and confess once again of our great need, a physician. A physician who gives himself on our behalf, who stands in our place who takes our deserved death, who brings an end to our condemnation, that we might be righteous before you. And so we come today in that strong confidence that it is in your Son, Jesus, that our prayers are heard because he intercedes for us.